Hi, I'm Pastor Colin with Aletheia Bible Fellowship, and today we're talking about maintaining solidarity in our marriages, even through conflict. So if you want to check that out and find some useful information, biblical scriptures, tips, those kinds of things, then go ahead and view that. And if you find that helpful, like and share with your friends. Okay. Well, this is week three of marriage talks in terms of solidarity. And last week we talked about, you know, just the, the basics of getting into that, the concept of leaving and cleaving and how important that is to set up your um, perspective on marriage as far as how God wants us to enter into those things and being prepared to, <clears throat> to settle into it in the, in the nature that God intended. Um, but there's something that's relatively intuitive to that, like just being created in God's image, we sort of know intrinsically what marriage is. You know, people are geared toward it. And so I ask, like, what's the difference between a secular marriage and a Christian marriage? And on the surface, the answer is not a whole lot. You know, the truth is that many secular marriages, they've got a lot of overlap with Christian ones in terms of what people are looking for, what people think is um, productive, like on the, on the surface, what is a good marriage, whatever that means. They want healthy communication. They want love and respect and happiness, right? They want flourishing family and kids. They want no fighting with the in-laws. They want to have goals and work together on stuff. For the most part, like those are ideals. <clears throat> what is different is how those things are achieved and exactly what that looks like, right? What is healthy? What is your definition of healthy? What's well, just, what does that even mean? What is love? What is respect? What is happiness? What are worthy goals to be striving toward uh, as a couple and individually even? How do children flourish? That's obviously a really big one right now. You know, do they need direction and consequence? Or should they be able to choose everything, you know, without the interference of the parents down to gender? It's like everything's on the table right now. For us, these things are defined in essence by Jesus Christ, right? We're all disciples of Christ, and that is, in essence, how we understand ourselves and what healthy relationship looks like. And that obviously applies to marriage, too. Who, should we, who, we, <clears throat> who we should be putting at the center of every marriage, is Christ. He is our strength of solidarity, as we're working on this year. And um, when he left his physical ministry here on earth, he left us the Holy Spirit, right? Who lives in each Christian. He, the Holy Spirit, is our counselor. <clears throat> Both our individual counselor and family counselor. In fact, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 I want to take a look at it real quick. It says, uh, Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to leave a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. We have the same spirit in each of us, right? And he works in solidarity. He works for our solidarity. 
<clears throat> and if that's true in the body, believe you me, it's true in the Christian marriage, right? And we can expect that, we can ask for that, we can appeal to God for the Spirit to fill us as we're working toward this biblical and godly end. And uh, when we submit to the Holy Spirit in the marriage, he helps us to be humble and gentle, as that passage says, as like universal principles that are applicable with us too. He helps us be humble and gentle. He helps us to be patient and make allowance for our faults, to be bound together with peace. You know, as we're thinking about our, our current marriages, as we're thinking about maybe past marriages, as we're like, you know, trying to repent of those things that we did wrong, or shoot, in our current marriages that we did wrong yesterday, you know? Are we thinking about all these different things that contribute towards solidarity in God's design through submission to the Holy Spirit? And then lastly in that passage, Paul says, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. You know, in this, there's glorious hope for the future in the marriage and far beyond it. That passage is talking about far beyond marriage. But part of the beauty of God's message is that we are starting toward that path right now through Christ, through sanctification, through the Holy Spirit. And so there is glorious hope in that process too. It doesn't need to be a fight every day. This is in comparison to the secular model, right? Operating as two essentially independent persons, making it work together, going for the, the ever uh, sought after ideal of reproductive success, right? In the evolutionary model. But in that, it's tough because there's a deep division amongst us in the culture, just at the nature of those assumptions. There's a united cause, but that cause is very shallow and doesn't go real deep. Even spouses can't be unified under that, not in any real relational sense. Just two people committing, hoping to have enough compatibility, quote-unquote, whatever that means, and hoping that the two don't drift apart or fall out of love over time. And that's a tall order for uh, a couple people whose commitment is based on about two minutes of words during a ceremony. There's really not a whole lot um, beyond that to base that off of, you know, besides practical things. There's not a lot of depth in the nature of that commitment. And, you know, besides that and the fear of consequence, you know, financial or relational consequence from divorce or whatever um, infighting might be going on in that. But I picture... I picture like unbiblical marriage, like putting two floaty toys in a river, you know? They're like next to each other at first, and you see all the water like flowing in the same parallel direction. You think, you know, okay, all the water's going together. It's like confined to this stream or whatever, and it's all going right there. They should float and stay with each other. Um, all logic leads us to expect the toys are going to stay together for a long time, and that's what we see in um, worldviews that are uninspired, that are, don't have the wisdom of God in understanding sin nature. But what really happens is almost immediately, those little floaty toys in the stream, like they start being pulled apart by those indistinguishable forces in the water, those swirling things that you can't really tell from your untrained eye. One goes faster, one goes slower, one floaty toy stays straight, and the other one veers off to the left, and we haven't even gotten to turbulent waters yet, you know? 
you hit rapids, they crash back together. You know, one of them flips over, and it's got a hole in it and starts sinking because, you know, they're flawed toys. If we're going with the analogy, marriages seem to be a lot like that. And in a sinful world, like, we have that same nature. But the Holy Spirit, who's in both people, he is the one that unites us, and that's what we have to contemplate when we're looking at solidarity within marriage. Um, yeah, when we set sail in that secular marriage, the ride's looking pretty promising, but all those forces drive us in life uh, apart. And I don't want to trivialize the factors which drive marriages uh, apart, but let's acknowledge that solidarity in marriage requires a bond of the spirit. Um, not just in you know, practical arrangements and things like that, though that helps. <clears throat> we need a strong force to hold us together, and the main difference is Jesus Christ, whose spirit is at the center of that marriage and who provides the main examples of values and conduct and order. 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 8, Paul says to Tiffany, Tiffany, Paul says to Timothy, good job, Paul teacher. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. Um, this is obviously not about marriage. You know, this is about being willing to step out boldly and be a witness for the Lord. But that is what marriages are. That's a huge part of what a marriage is. And it is driven and held together by the Spirit. And it's true that many marriages suffer from a spirit of fear and timidity. But that is not us. Our marriages, our relationships should be held together by a bond characterized of power and through love and self-discipline. The Spirit of God, he gives us that, that power to bond together any relationship done through that agape love, that, God's, <clears throat> that love that is God's, that self-sacrificial love and self-discipline in that. So... As we're looking to do that, we have to find solidarity in, in how we operate together in those senses, right? And so let's go to that classic passage in Ephesians 5, uh, 22 to 26 to start with. 22 says, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ... So you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. And for husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Now, I don't want to go through the whole submission versus respect discussion uh, in this, but I want to focus on some of these elements, sort of hopefully honing in on solidarity. We should start with a base of understanding in that solidarity that husbands and wives are not to be the same, but they're to work together. Right? Men and women are simply different by design, and God has different intent for us in marriage. 
are we taking that into account and communicating on that on a, on a realistic level? We see a straight <clears throat> statement here in adhering to God's created authority structure within the family in, in regard to these differences. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the specifics, but the, the quick and dirty is that you know man is doing his part by being the head and having the responsibility to lead the family as Christ did, to lead the marriage as Christ did, and women submitting in everything as to the Lord. This means that God is the focus, right? And all submission should be compatible with God's commands for us. It ain't solidarity if it's sinful, right? Even if you're together in those decisions. That's not solidarity. Because for us, it doesn't take two to tango. It takes three. God is obviously the third person. Doesn't mean the doormat scenario where women are to be, um, you know, just stepped on and submission in, in everything, period. But there to be strong and productive and good advisors, like we've had conversations on many times. But ultimately, there should be a total submission, right? Because without total submission, can you say that there is solidarity there? The answer is no. And that's a difficult thing to... Um, I want to say, like, fight over, because it will be a struggle. And that's okay. You can fight. But there needs to be total submission and solidarity at the end of the day in those things. So going into that, you know, going back to the people that aren't married or whatever that are looking at it, you've got to count the cost of that marriage. And so do the rest of us that are married every day. A primary source of solidarity for men should be their love for their wives, that agape love, Christ's sacrificial love. Men, we got to count this cost too. Happy Father's Day. It's an honorable job, but it's a, it's a tough one. Just like every other job that God gives for each of us. Right? Just like occupations. There is no occupation that is more glorious um, than another outside of sin. But they are all different. They all hold a weight. And so each role in the family holds a weight. Do we find joy in that weight? You know? Are we thinking about our solidarity every day? Because that's the crux of it. <clears throat> that sacrifice is your glory. And it's to the Father's glory, is what the scripture teaches. Just as Jesus' sacrifice is to the Father's glory. Achievements require sacrifice, and solidarity is an achievement of great magnitude. That's why we celebrate so emphatically anniversaries of marriage, right? It's cool. I just love it when it's usually on a, like a YouTube recording of something or whatever, but, you know, when they have like a big group of people and it's like, okay, everybody stand up that's been married for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and it's like, you get up into those decades where you're like, whoa, that's awesome, and it's like, we should have a confident hope that all of us are going to get there through solidarity in the spirit, and it is worthy of great admiration and respect because there is a weight to that. There is a struggle to that. Um, but there's also a huge beauty in that. <clears throat> Before talking about the husband and wife in that passage, Paul talks about submitting to one another. right? And that's in a chain of 
thought being, uh, of being filled with the Spirit. And so here again, we see the driving force of solidarity. Verse 15, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days and don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we see just that theme in Scripture, this submission structure, this order of how God designs things. Like, there is always an authority structure and submission with equal value in all those things. So... We need to be in discussion of how we fit into those pictures. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes into the, you know, men and women submit and respect and all this stuff. Uh, the driving force, uh, I mean submission and love. The driving force of solidarity in that, again, is the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. Not being pulled around by other unseen, unexpected forces in life. And that's, that's where the don't be drunk with wine thing comes in, right? Don't be uncontrolled. Don't allow yourself to be pulled around by these other forces that are valid. Being drunk is not a valid force, but it's a good representation of, of allowing yourself to be controlled by something else, by another force, instead of being filled with the Spirit. It's just that when you're drunk, you're completely vulnerable to being controlled by other things because your brain ain't working properly. Like, that's what that is. Um, yeah, so what do we got going on there? Not being pulled around by other unseen forces in life to the end of submitting in reverence for Christ <clears throat> in our relationship. And in doing that, letting our, allowing our selfish individual nature submit to unity in all things instead of it pulling on things, it trying to separate from the other one to get what it wants in the moment. Do we ask to be filled with the Spirit when we're going to have an important conversation with our boss? You know, something we're scared about. We have a spirit of fear and timidity. You say, God, help me with this conversation. I'm scared. You know, this has a lot of consequence on my life. Do we give the same weight and thought to our conversations in our working out the mechanics of our relationships? Right? We should. We should. What about the, you know, the date night when you're dedicating time to that relationship? You ask for God's blessing in those things, even the regular things, right? Because we set aside time and investment as is proper so that we can um, give the relationship that God has given us the proper respect and love and submission and all of those things, trying to make all those things work. Do we bring God into that on a regular basis or just when things are going sideways? We should be bringing God in all the time. We should be constantly in prayer with this not, definitely not at the bottom of the priority list. Solidarity is within the parameters which God sets, but there's a lot of freedom in Christ. It's the communication and coming to be of one mind, that process, with that, within that one flesh union. You know, you're one flesh with the person, you need to be of one mind with that person. Otherwise, that is not communicating the solidarity 
that comes from the Spirit of God. How is somebody supposed to be looking at your relationship and saying that is unified in a supernatural way if your mind is not on the same page as your flesh? So yeah, we need to work on that, having a cohesive worldview between two people, being in prayer, being in, you know, working with that, looking for that mutual partnership and submission and authority structure. And part of that is that functional relationship, right, between husband and wife, how it was designed. God's design for marriage, it was revealed in the Garden of Eden when God created a woman for Adam and brought her to him as a helper. And he was like, man's alone. This isn't good. We've got to do something with this. But this helper, which is what a lot of translations translate it as, um, it kind of, you know, it kind of sounds not like the most glorious job, which we know intellectually is not true of any job that gives us, that God gives us. But in this case, the word translated helper comes from a Hebrew word, that's also used in describing the help that God gives in a bunch of circumstances. Uh, we got like Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 33. I don't know. It's just all over the place in terms of describing God as this same type of helper. This is no um, term that, man, words. This is no term that, that lowers the status of a person. God's word gives him that status of helper and the importance of that. Take Deuteronomy 33, 26, and 27 as an example of this. It says, no one, there's no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you, across the skies in majestic splendor. The eternal God is your refuge, and his everlasting arms are under you. A huge part of solidarity in marriage is in fruit, right? And that comes with partnering with each other, with a leader and a helper in a coordinated effort. And so, in solidarity, we get a huge, we get a huge sense of solidarity from our productivity, right? It's who we are. It's who we're designed to be. It's part of the um, initial mandate that God gives us, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And he says that in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Big job. <clears throat> but if you notice, God bookmarked mankind's formation with dominion over creation, both before and after. It's important. This productivity is important. The usage of fruitful, it's often paired with multiply and almost always um, <clears throat> with increasing or flourishing or prospering in the meaning of that, if not directly in the translation itself. So it's not like the same concept as multiplying. Right? You have multiplying, just growing in number, but being fruitful is something different. I think we all pretty much understand that, but it's in there and it's embedded in the text. So what do we need 
to do in order to sustain multiplying a people? That kind of goes along with that answer, right? So you've got to be fruitful in order to sustain your multiplication. We need marriages to bear children to multiply, right? And so that's part of it for sure. And also, you need to be fruitful, productive and flourishing and prospering to support all those kids, especially at the rate that the Hebrews, for example, were multiplying, right? They grow super fast from a family of Abraham into a nation, and a nation that threatened one of the most powerful nations ever, ancient Egypt. That's why we got to have government support, right, in our culture for all this extra stuff for parents with young kids because, like, kids take supporting. They're little leeches for a long time, for quite a while. So we need money or resources to successfully multiply or even to simply replenish ourselves. You know, two people have two kids. Um, yeah, we are often not fruitful enough to support our own as a society. Now, I've taken food stamps, you know, I sure ain't trying to return my tax refund for the kids. I'm very thankful for that. It's pretty cool. However, we should take our fruitfulness seriously, making sure that we aren't being lazy in providing for our families, and we're partnering in that process. You know, even though two people may have different roles, like, there should be this discussion of what that really looks like and having intent behind it in solidarity, making sure that we're not lazy in that process, but doing right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, participating in God's first mandate to us. But flourishing, it's more than just providing and feeding. Right? A healthy family is more than food on the table. A healthy family must flourish in a comprehensive way in order to build a great nation and culture like Abraham did when God called him and said that he would multiply his descendants. It's training in godly character its ministry, its involvement in the church, and a lot more. All these goals, they start with the marriage. And in terms of partnering things, I just want to give some highlights from the Proverbs 31 woman. 13 and 15, she finds wool and flax and busily spins it. This is like the ideal woman, right? It start, the passage starts with, who can find such a a noble woman or something like that. Like, who can find such a quality wife? Uh, 13. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She gets up before dawn and to prepare breakfast for her household and plan the day's work for the servant girls. Like, there's all this coordination and, and effort and skill involved in that. 17 and 18. She's an energetic and strong and hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable and her lamp burns late into the night. Then she extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms to the needy. Again, we have like this aspect of ministry that's involved in productivity. And remember, all of this is in the context of being a helpmate. Like she's not, she's not operating on her own aside from the man. Like this is all in God's design working together. She has no fear of winter for her household, for everybody has warm clothes. And we see all these things like economic success and discipline like that first passage said, to provide plus ministry among the poor. Uh, 26 and 27, when she speaks, her words are wise and she gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. 
So we see character and discipline and management and support um, to support current and future generations looking out. Uh, verse 30, charm is deceptive and beauty does not last, but a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. And so lastly, we see the heart of it all, being fear of the Lord in her. Fearing the Lord instead of thinking she's so cool by her own strength. There's nothing in that passage about being a perfect 10. You know? That's not what we value. We value solidarity in service to God through the Spirit for God's glory. So what is our marriage doing? You know? What are we planning for our marriages? What's our vision for the productivity, for the fruit that's being born of that? So that we can come together and have that sense of identity. What is that? <clears throat> this tough struggle, you know? Like, I'd be a total liar if I said that Beth and I got that figured out. We are very much in the process of figuring that out. Um, but we need to have real conversations about that and real um, weight behind it and not fear, but pursuing things, seeing what God has for us in different areas and being able to work together tactically and all those things as a unified front. That doesn't mean that you have to be attached to you know, the other person all the time. It means that those efforts need to be intentfully coordinated. But whatever we do, just like anything else, we shouldn't go it alone. Leaving and cleaving is good, but it's not mutually exclusive with love and support in the body. Right? Just because you have to leave other relationships by, behind in their priority to prioritize a marriage and focus on cleaving and becoming one flesh with that person, being of one mind and solidarity, that doesn't exclude all the other scriptures that talk about being united in the body, in support, in accountability, in all these things. Marriages can really benefit from that wise, objective viewpoint of a biblical counselor. We should be taking that seriously when it comes to how we fit together, how we coordinate and um, do right by that principle of solidarity. Proverbs 15.22 just simply says, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. A lot of people's downfall is that they're on an island, you know, trying to do the family thing with the white picket fence, and the inside is just getting eaten by termites. You know, it's too hard to maintain. Um, no Holy Spirit as the counselor in there to keep those things going, or, you know, it's just too many forces pulling apart, and it's too hard to submit to God's guidance in that. We need advisors for our marriage and potential marriage relationships. Sometimes that's awkward or scary, or we can feel insecure, but we got to get over it, right? we got to get over it on both ends of that advising relationship, whether you're advisor or taking advice, whether you're mentor or mentoree, discipler, 
disciple or teacher, I guess. It's not an optional, you know, when you feel ready type thing. It's urgent. There's a lot at stake in these things in pursuing solidarity. On, on top of it all, it's, it's commanded. Here's a message from Paul to Titus, a budding leader in the church. Paul is encouraging him to make sure there's good teaching in his church. Titus 2, 2 through 5. Paul says, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Seems like a good, solid start there. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Love their husbands is what they must be trained to do. Philandros is the word there. It's a particular compound word in the Greek. <clears throat> it's for loving friend mixed with the husband as a target of that. It's only used here in the whole Bible. It's kind of interesting. Sort of a unique word. It's not used to talk about all kinds of different loves like food or siblings or natural beauty or whatever else. It's a special love for a husband. Paul crafted a special compound word here because this is a special, holy, set-apart relationship, right? It's a private love, right? Yes and no. There are certain aspects that are private, but no, not at all. And this passage really highlights that, right? Older women are supposed to come alongside the young ones in this struggle to figure out how to navigate this relationship and all of its dynamics. Train, the word for train, as in, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely, be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. Train is another special word here, and it's also used only once in this form. It is sophroniso, literally living in divine moderation. Um, it's moving in the bigger picture, transforming someone to be radically balanced, quote-unquote according to the Lord's will. It is a radical modernization. Um, it's a radical like moderation that requires a, a complete perspective that's combining a bunch of legitimate extremities, extremes that you have to balance in life, priorities, and we know that's how scripture works too, right? We are given things that are almost complete opposites of each other, but, but told to hold them at the same time and in fullness. And that's difficult. But that is the mark of God. That is the mark of the fruit of the Spirit and self-control. <clears throat> and so this word, to train, it's talking about teaching a person to take those legitimate extremities of truth from both sides of a matter and putting those into a cohesive unit of solidarity. Doing this is vital to counseling young women and especially mothers in the will of God. That word sophroniso, it emphasizes 
passing on what the Lord reveals as his righteous balance of things. If that doesn't describe the need of new wives and mothers, I don't know what does. You know, with all the stuff that's on the table, pinned down with breastfeeding a child or teaching or disciplining them while at the same time trying to like keep the house up and being a helpful part of the church body, oftentimes also having a job outside of the home, plus and arguably primarily learning how to have that special love in your marriage relationship, treating that marriage with that cleaving priority that is right. That's balancing extremities in pure form for sure. Paul says we need to help one another in this difficult balance of serving God through all these relationships and responsibilities. Not only that, but leaders, we're supposed to facilitate those relationships, right? So if you're in a position, maybe not even a technical leadership position, but if you're in a position where you are discipling other people, part of that is encouraging these relationships amongst the body in general. Paul isn't talking to women directly here, though surely he knows they'll read it because it's a, a letter to the church, but he's directing Timothy uh, for how to make the church flourish by God's design in these complex relationships. From the beginning of the church in the Great Commission, and even before Jesus' three-year example with his crew, God's intent has been to perpetuate the church through discipleship. Guided by the Holy Spirit and to an end of total solidarity with Christ and each other. That's a good example of that amongst women. Amongst men, as the other passages talked about, like... Um, I picture it as two different things. Like women are categorized as a helpmate for the man in a marriage relationship. And so in a way, there's sort of, it's sort of the struggle is being within a certain box of parameters, right? And then the man is tasked with leadership and the box is completely and utterly open while having to, you know, manage his family too in that. But the struggles are are totally different. And men need discipleship in that, in all sorts of training for godliness, as the scripture says. And the women have a specific struggle in that. Like, we need to come alongside each other in the context of these marriage relationships and, you know, have more double dates and stuff. We had a double date with John and Heidi the other day, and it was great. We had a good time. We like rendezvoused with Adam and Brittany on accident, and it was fun. We went and saw a movie. And those relationships are good. But what we didn't do is really like talk about the, the serious mechanics of discipleship in, those, in our marriages and stuff. And it's not that you have to do that on every interaction, but it's something that we should incorporate more. You know, it's something that will bond us in solidarity as a body, not to mention in our individual relationships. And by all means, bring the young people, the young men and the young women into these conversations so that they can be coached in these matters too. So they don't have to do it like the rest of us, you know, where, <clears throat> I don't know, most of us are just rolling through it like, 
you know, Wild Bill taking shots from the hip, like trying to figure out what works. Like we want to set up the future generations better and better and better to try to figure out how the heck all this works in marriage relationships submitted to Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit bonding us together. It's our responsibility to take solidarity extremely seriously in marriages within this church, within this body. That's tall order. But there's hope. There's hope in that. This life doesn't last forever. And if you've got commitment issues, your marriage doesn't even last forever either. If you're married, married, Christ teaches that people aren't married in heaven. Or at least those relationships are not the same and they won't have the same struggles as here on earth. We only have to hold out for so long to give God the glory that he needs to set up our families and the rest of our church for success in these things. If you have commitment issues, just wait a little bit. You'll die. That's real. That's a real perspective. Like, that's funny, but it's 100% true. Because it doesn't end here. In Christ, we will be raised, and we will have a new life. And we can't even comprehend what that looks like. But these struggles will not be the same. God's ordained it to be that way. In that day, God's going to live among us, and all our needs will be met. We won't need a helpmate or a provider or a family leader or a parent. Like God will be with us, among us. Our lives will be lit by God, metaphorically and physically. <clears throat> so we should make our marriages here count. Second Timothy again, 1, 5 through 8. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. All those elements produce solidarity in relationship, but they stem from faith. As Paul cites it, he cites that strong pattern of faith in Timothy's family. That legacy, he recognizes it. And he says, Timothy, you're set up for success. You have this legacy of faith. I've seen it in you. And it is strong. It is powerful. It's characterized by love and self-discipline. We need that kind of faithful, Christ-centered submission to one another in this body. And that includes within our marriages, and that definitely includes solidarity with Christ. And to what end? So that we can honor God, so we can honor the image of Him through our marriages, that illustration. So it's a witness through that relationship in its intended form and the consequences are also good for our family, for the future, so that our Timothys in the future can be set up for success and be expected with confident hope that they will succeed, that their 
marriages will be healthy and fruitful and bonded together in Christ, giving him glory, representing God's image and character in that relationship. So let's set this pattern of faith in the core of our family with God's power to keep it strong. I'm going to read the questions right now, and then I believe we've got uh, a presentation real quick, and then I'll just hit the questions again real quick before we go into some group. So question number one, how can we best figure out solidarity within the specifics of our gender roles? Not so much, you know, the exact, like the specifics of those things, because we have a lot of parameters, but how, like in what way can we best figure out the solidarity, figure out the specifics within our relationships of those gender roles? Number two, how does the fruit within your marriage factor into your solidarity? How does the fruit within your marriage factor into your solidarity? And obviously, if you're not married yet, like contemplate these things, chew on this, look at other people that suck, look at other people that are good in your mind, and meditate on these things. You know, learn from other people's mistakes and successes. How does the fruit within your marriage factor into your solidarity? And third, <clears throat> what relationships in the body are helpful for marriage health and understanding? What relationships in the body... I guess I sort of tied that in the last one. What relationships in the body are helpful for marriage, health, and understanding? Um, like, you know, what can you use more help in or what, what help can you give? 